The Russian Revolution was one of the most significant events of the 20th century. It not only transformed Russia, but it also had far-reaching impact on the course of world history, shaping the political, economic, and ideological landscape globally. And Leon Trotsky was one of the most significant figures in the Russian Revolution, single-handedly creating the Red Army and leading them to the victory that began the Soviet Union. However, Trotsky actually missed the first part of the revolution. At the time when all these fast-moving events were sweeping his home country of Russia, he was in prison in, of all places, Amherst, Nova Scotia. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes. With your host and author, Andrew McLean. Leon Trotsky had spent his entire life working towards a Russian revolution. Or I should say, a Russian revolution that won. See, Russia wasn't exactly unfamiliar with revolutions, but up until the events in 1917, the government had always successfully violently repressed these efforts at revolution. Trotsky's first Russian revolution had actually been 12 years before these events, way back in 1905. It had been crushed, and he was imprisoned in a camp in Siberia for his efforts, and then he was deported from Siberia out of Russia. In the dozen years afterwards, he hadn't given up on trying to promote a Russian revolution while abroad, while living everywhere from Switzerland to France to New York City. To generalize a pretty long story, he would basically set himself up in a new city, become so well known for his revolutionary activities, which frightened the governments of the countries he lived in, and then these governments would then deport him, and he'd begin it all again in a new country. And that was the short story version of how he came to be running a newspaper in New York City when a revolution broke out in faraway Russia back in February of 1917 during the First World War. He immediately packed up his belongings and his family, and he boarded a ship back to Russia to participate in the revolution that he'd spent his whole life working towards. However, his ship, which was called the Christiania Fjord, had to make a stop in Halifax before crossing the Atlantic Ocean. He later described the events in his autobiography, which is titled simply, My Life, Writing. On April 3rd, British officers accompanied by Blue Jackets came aboard the Chrysiliani Fjord and demanded in the name of the local admiral that I, my family, and five other passengers leave the boat. We declared that the order was illegal and refused to obey, whereupon armed Blue Jackets pounced on us. My boy ran up to help me and struck an officer with his little fist. Shall I hit him again, Papa? He shouted. He was eleven then and it was his first lesson in British democracy. I must admit that even today, the secret machinery of my arrest is not clear to me. The British must have put me on its blacklist. Despite what Trotsky said there, we do have to make an important distinction here. He wasn't actually arrested. He had been interned. Trotsky had actually been traveling legally with a genuine and legitimate passport and papers that he'd received through the proper channels from the Russian embassy in the United States. While Trotsky was firmly of the opinion 
that the British were indeed behind his arrest in Nova Scotia, he didn't actually have any proof. He was actually right in his suspicion, but that proof would only ever come out in 2001, when a trove of secret documents were finally released by the British government. One of those documents that were released in 2001 was a telegram sent by British spies in New York City back to their home base in London, dated March 22nd, 1917. In it, an agent of the MI5, which is a British spy agency, warned, An important movement has been started here amongst socialists, with a view to getting back revolutionary socialists into Russia, with the object of establishing a republic and initiating a peace movement also of promoting socialistic revolutions in other countries, including the United States. The main leader is Trotsky. Because Canada at the time was a British colony, when Trotsky's ship was docked in Halifax, he was detained. His wife and kids were left in Halifax, where they were placed under house arrest and later released to live on their own at a hotel, but they had to report in every day at the Halifax police station. As for Trotsky himself, he was sent by train to what he called the Amherst Concentration Camp. The Amherst Internment Camp was actually its real name. Located in the former Malleable Iron Foundry on Park Street in Amherst, Nova Scotia, it was one of several internment camps established in Canada during the First World War. According to Trotsky, the Amherst concentration camp was located in an old and very dilapidated iron foundry that had been confiscated from its German owner. The sleeping bunks were arranged in three tiers, two deep on each side of the hall. About 800 of us lived in these conditions. The air in this impoverished dormitory at night can be imagined. Men hopelessly dogged the passengers, elbowed their way through, lay down or got up, played cards or chess. Many of them practice crafts, some with extraordinary skill. I still have stored in Moscow some things made by Amherst prisoners. Canada's First World War internment camp system would differ wildly from camp to camp, from coast to coast, and were notably harsher out west than here on the east coast. That's perhaps surprising since out west they were almost entirely for civilian populations minority groups that happened to have immigrated from, or have had heritage of countries Canada was then at war with, were rounded up and sent to these internment camps. On the other hand though, the Amherst internment camp, which was one of three in Nova Scotia, and these were the only ones in the maritime provinces, housed predominantly actual German prisoners of war, coming in from either U-boats, which admittedly was rare, or civilian workers who were on German ships that had been captured during the war. Trotsky wrote that, Of these 800 prisoners in the camp, perhaps 500 were sailors from German boats sunk by the British, about 200 were workers caught by the war in Canada, and a hundred more were officers and civilians of the bourgeois class. He wrote that once he arrived and he was processed in, an examination the likes of which I had never before experienced, even in the Peter Paul Fortress in Russia. Even in the Tsar's Fortress, the police stripped me and searched me in privacy. Whereas here our democratic allies subjected us to this shameful humiliation before a dozen men. He met the Amherst internment camp's commandant, 
Colonel Arthur Edward Morris, who was an aging veteran of the Boer War, and Trotsky protested to him that no orders for my arrest had ever been produced. When the colonel mentioned that the old imperial Russian government that the revolution had by this point already overthrown had exiled him, Trotsky noted that everything he said to this commandant seemed to fall on deaf ears, writing, For him it was like the Russian revolution simply did not exist. I tried to explain that the Tsar's ministers who had in their day made me a political immigrant were now in prison, but this was too complicated for the colonel who had made his career in the British colonies and the Boer War. I did not show proper respect when I spoke to him which made him growl. If I only had you on the South African coast. That was his pet expression. In response to my repeated demands and protests, Colonel Morris did tell me his official reason for the arrest. You are dangerous to the present Russian government. The Colonel, obviously not a man of eloquence, had worn an air of suspicious excitement. I protested. The Russian government ought to be allowed to take care of itself. Colonel Morris thought for a while, moving his jaw, then added, You are dangerous to the Allies in general. It was early 1917, and the First World War had been going on for nearly three years. Millions of people had been killed, and the old Victorian order that had defined the world for the better part of the past century was falling apart. Even in Canada, there had recently been unprecedented moves against the all-powerful authority of national leaders. Notably in the Maritimes, there had been some protests by farmers against the possibility of conscription, which means being drafted into the army. These protests by farmers came as a real shock to Canadian leaders, who were used to the public simply obediently obeying them. There was a growing fear that if the Russian Revolution was successful, even if it was on the opposite side of the world, it might inspire other revolutions in more countries, including, possibly, right here in Canada. One of the Russian Revolutionaries' most popular slogans was simply, Bread and Peace. The peace part of that slogan alarmed the governments of countries like Canada, Britain, and France. Russia was an important ally of theirs in the First World War, and they were terrified that if Russia made peace with Germany, then the formidable German military machine would defeat them. They weren't wrong. Leon Trotsky himself would later negotiate the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk that would end the war between Germany and Russia. But of course, that was far in the future from his time in an internment camp in Amherst, Nova Scotia. According to his own autobiography, he spent his time while he was locked up in the camp, educating, inspiring, and organizing the proletarian prisoners towards a communist revolution. In his own telling of his time in Amherst, Trotsky spent his time trying to make the prisoners converts into communism. The whole month I was there like one continuous mass meeting. I told the prisoners about the Russian Revolution, about Lenin, and about the causes of the collapse of the old Internationale and the intervention of the United States in the war. Besides these speeches, we also had group discussions. Our friendship grew warmer every day. The perspective of Trotsky's time there was actually backed up by those in command of the internment camp itself. According to the second-in-command of that internment camp, Captain F.C. Whitmore, He gave us a lot of trouble at the camp. 
and if he had stayed much longer, would have made communists of all the German prisoners. It wasn't all big meetings at the camp, though. The prisoners also had chores, which Trotsky described saying, The sailors did everything they could to make my life easier. It was only by constant protests that I kept my right to stand in line for dinner and to make my share of the compulsory work of sweeping floors, peeling potatoes, washing crockery, and cleaning the common lavatory. Perhaps you could make the case that Trotsky himself cleaning toilets in a prison camp was a little bit of a revolutionary activity in the sense that he was volunteering to do something rather below his station. You see, Leon Trotsky was already an extremely famous man at this time. Word of his internment in Nova Scotia spread quickly to Russia, where it was already causing a crisis. The new government in Russia was a nominally democratic one, usually known simply as the Provisional Government. It included a bewildering array of figures from all across the political spectrum, all of whom seemed to have opinions on Trotsky being in Amherst. In his own opinion, which he admittedly had no evidence for, Trotsky blamed his incarceration at the Amherst internment camp squarely on Pavel Milikov, who was a historian. He was a historian who went on to become a liberal politician who became the Minister of Foreign Affairs in the new government, which is how he fits into the story. But he was still a historian, so that's pretty cool, right? Trotsky had strong opinions on those who had sent him to the camp, writing, One needs no proof to show that Milyukov, then Minister of Foreign Affairs, was the heart and soul in favor of my arrest. As early as 1905, he was waging a bitter war against Trotskyism. The very term in his coining. Trotsky never actually did figure out why he was sent to Amherst in the first place. Just as abruptly as he was sent there, he was told that he was leaving. Although he wasn't told where he was being taken to. Which soon caused an uproar as he was told to leave. On the 29th of April came the hour for our release from the concentration camp. We were ordered to pack our things and proceed under convoy. When we demanded why and wherefore, they refused to say anything. The prisoners became excited because they thought we were being taken to a fortress. We asked for the nearest Russian consul. They refused us again. We had reason enough for not trusting these highwaymen of the sea. And so we insisted that we would not go voluntarily until they told us where we were going. The commander ordered forcible measures. Soldiers carried out our luggage, but we stayed stubbornly in our bunks. It was only when the convoy was faced with the task of physically carrying us out just as we had been taken off the steamer a month earlier, and of doing it in the midst of a crowd of excited sailors, that the commander relented and told us in his characteristic Anglo-colonial way that we were to sail on a Danish boat for Russia. Colonel Morris' face twitched convulsively. He could not bear the thought that we were escaping him. If only it had been on the African coast. As we were being taken away from the camp, our fellow prisoners gave us a most impressive send-off. The sailors and workers lined the passage on both sides and improvised band played a revolutionary march and friendly hands were extended to us from every quarter. One of the prisoners delivered a short speech acclaiming the Russian Revolution and cursing the German monarchy. Even now it makes me happy to remember that in the very midst of the war we were fraternizing with German sailors in Amherst. 
As a parting shot, I warned him that my first business in the Constituent Assembly would be to question Foreign Minister Milyukov about the outrageous treatment of Russian citizens by the Anglo-Canadian police. I hope, said Mackin, in quick retort, that you will never get into the Constituent Assembly. Only about half a year after Trotsky returned to Russia, a second revolution rocked the nation. This time it would drag on for years, turning into one of the deadliest conflicts in all of human history, costing an estimated 6 million lives. During this time Trotsky became the supreme commander of the Red Army, a military force that he not only personally created from scratch, but he turned from a ragtag band of factory workers into the most formidable military force on the planet. Trotsky never did forgive Pavel Milukov, the historian turned Minister of Foreign Affairs for Russia, for having him imprisoned in the Amherst internment camp. But Pavel Milukov actually had nothing to do with his imprisonment. A trove of top-secret documents from two British spy agencies called MI5 and MI6 were released in 2001. These allow us to piece together what actually happened that led to Trotsky's arrest. One of those two agencies, called MI5, had been tracking Trotsky's activities in New York City, as we saw earlier. They were intent on arresting him, writing in a telegram. Until such men as Trotsky are finally convicted, anti-war agitation will be carried on in the factories. They had found a source who said that Trotsky had been being paid by the German government. However, another British spy agency called MI6, which by the way is the one that James Bond works for in the movies, was oddly enough a rival of MI5 who also had spies in New York City. These two British spy agencies were actually spying on each other, as well as revolutionaries, despite working for the same country. A high-ranking MI6 spymaster named Claude Dancy arrived in New York City, and he met up with the rest of the agency to review this Trotsky situation. I've been asked him a few questions about the informant who had said Leon Trotsky was a German agent. And from what I'd gathered, there's a strong possibility that he was an agent provocateur, used by the old Russian secret police. I told him I five that Leon Trotsky, he had better be discharged at once. And he said that he was going to do so. He stated in another report being sent back to London that... Oh, I believe the new Russian government would at once ask for Trotsky's release and that we should be unable to hold him and that unless they were very certain of the source of information against him, it would be much better to let him go before he got angry. And there you have it. That's the answer to that question whose answer Trotsky himself never quite figured out. How did he end up in an internment camp in Amherst, Nova Scotia during the Russian Revolution? It was because of an overzealous British spy. And, oddly enough, that was actually the exact same reason that he got released a month later. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.